Welcome back for our second panel. Uh, as mentioned before, I am Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, and I'm very uh, honored to serve as the moderator of our second panel. Uh, also lucky to have three gentlemen that I might even go as far on some days to call friends. So <laughs> it's uh, nice to have what I think will be a very good conversation with a very wide range of perspectives. Uh, there were bios outside, so I will not go too in-depth in their bios, but just quickly introduce them. Uh, Michael Bright is uh, advisor to Senator Corker, uh, handles Senator Corker's uh, banking committee work and is very involved in his work in terms of mortgage finance reform uh, and certainly very knowledgeable about Dodd-Frank as well. Uh, Paul Atkins, a former commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission. I would almost say he might be my favorite former commissioner, but since uh, I was actually hired at one point by Kathy Casey, I think I have to say Kathy, or she'd give me a hard time. <laughs> so my second favorite former SEC commissioner. And uh, Marcus Stanley, another former Senate staffer, there seems to be three of us here, who uh, runs the Financial Regulation Area for Americans for Financial Reform. Uh, what I want to do, and I guess I'll, I will start out with uh, the regular disclaimer uh, on behalf of my co-panelists that anything that any of us say today are, are just our own opinions and don't represent any organizations. Uh, and certainly myself, I might even not, might be my, might not even be my opinions after I give them further thought. So unless there's uh, some <laughs> modification to those disclaimers, I will assume that they apply um, to all of us. With that said, uh, the first panel was really kind of a look back on, on, on where we've been. Ian, most of this panel I want to be really going forward, but it does make some sense to also start with a look back. So I want to open up the first question of the discussion to be along the line of expectations. Uh, all of us, some of us were a little closer, but all of us on the panel were involved at least watching very closely the Dodd-Frank process. It's been three years. Uh, so what I want to ask each of the panelists, and i start with Michael, is uh, has the last three years gone along according to what your expectations were? Are there any big surprises that uh, you didn't expect, both good or bad? Uh, thanks. And um, first, I'll say thank you for, for having me. Um, I love Cato. I love your work. We love reading it. I am often pained by reading something that Cato writes and thinking, geez, I really wish we could past that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I've, every I've also learned what uh, being a minority in the United States Senate is like, um, and often we can't, if not <laughs> more often than not, really don't have a chance to pass that. So um, we're, we're very frequently um, struggling with the gulf between uh, what we can do and what we wish we could do and what we wish we could do often aligns with, uh, with what you write and what, what you guys write. Um, so has it gone I, the way we expected? I guess I would say, unfortunately, yes. Um, I mean, Dodd-Frank Dodd is, is just a, a set of, I guess, largely aspirational rule-writing requirements. Um, I think there have been, um, you know, various examples of realizing that uh, you can put it into statute and say, we want you to figure out a rule that does all of these things without doing all of these bad things over here, but just putting it in statute doesn't make it so. And so um, a one of the reasons that, you know, we're you know, uh, two thirds of the way through some of the rules and have spilled something like 5 million words in regulation with, you know, another three or 4 million left to go, it's various estimates on that. Um, but one of the reasons that it's so, so problematic and taking so long, I think, is that there is a push-pull between the aspirational goals of some of the aspects of the legislation and um, um, the reality of, can you implement it and do that? I, I think one of the shining examples has been, was, for example, the Durbin Amendment. So the Durbin Amendment is, to me, uh, encapsulates a lot of what's wrong with this bill. 
it, it had nothing to do with the financial crisis. It was purely punitive, I think, in, in, its, in nature. It was not very well written. There was a massive gulf between what it said it was going to do and what it actually did. And there's a push-pull that was unable to be resolved in terms of the promises that the amendment was supposed to have and, and the reality of what it could do. So can you, can you craft a, 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 a price cap without damaging small institutions and do it in such a way that considers all costs? But how do you, how do you consider all costs in a piece of legislation and a price cap if the market is giving you the price? I mean, that is the price that considers all costs. And in, in this particular case, it was the fraud costs that were going to basically have to be cut out because of the way the statute was written. So we had an attempt to, to fix that. It didn't succeed. Um, and I, I just think that that is a metaphor for a lot. It was an a, a, a aspirational set of rules that couldn't really fulfill the promises that it was made. There was an attempt to fix it. First, there was an attempt to repeal. The attempt to repeal changed into an attempt to, well, let's at least see if we can make this rule do something along the lines of what it was promised that it would do. And then that didn't pass. And we haven't really seen a whole lot of statutory changes to Dodd-Frank since. So um, I guess this is a sad long answer of saying, yes, the last few years have been what I expected, and I think that's unfortunate, and I think there's probably a couple more to go. Well, thank you, and, I, and also thank you for the, the kind words about Cato. If it's uh, anywhere comforting or not, having spent about half my time as a staffer in the majority and half my time in the minority, uh, I can say it wasn't a whole lot easier to get anything good in the majority either. So uh, <laughs> it's painful either way we go. Uh, let me skip over to Marcus, because I, I, I know Marcus was also very instrumental in, in lobbying for a lot of the provisions of, of Dodd-Frank. And, and so I want to ask you, have things gone according to how you expected? Um, well, I actually was on the Hill during, uh, during the Dodd-Frank process. I think, um, you, you know, my, Michael and I may not agree on much, but I think that we we do agree uh, that there were real weaknesses in Dodd-Frank involving uh, the, the sheer level of regulatory discretion that uh, Congress passed a, a lot of hard choices over to the regulators, and I think that those are choices that the regulators have the authority and the ability to make, and they they should make those calls and they need to make those calls, but in a lot of cases they've had a lot of difficulty uh, doing that. And I think to, to some degree, uh, some of the framers of, of Dodd-Frank understood that that would be an, an issue and it, it was sort of predictable. I, uh, I sometimes say that Dodd-Frank is, uh, is a bill that's radical only in its length. It's a, uh, a very, uh, it's, it's really in many ways uh, a, a moderate uh, kind of a, a middle road bill that instructs uh, the regulators to, uh, to make many improvements to the financial system without actually uh, mandating strong forms of those changes that would really uh, create systemic change. And you can see that in the, the capital rules. We're starting to see some, some motion on that. But in Title I, uh, there are a lot of instructions to uh, increase capital, to set graduated capital standards. This was thrown over into the Basel process. The Basel process gave us a 3% leverage ratio. Uh, a lot of action on the the risk weighted capital side, but you, you know those those rules can be gamed in a lot of ways. I don't think a 33 to 1 uh, leverage ratio really is represents uh, reform that's that's uh, you know the scope and magnitude that's equal to the problems that were revealed in the financial crisis. Uh, more recently, now we've finally begun to see some action on this in terms of uh, of raising those capital ratios. But you could just multiply those examples uh, many times over uh, Dodd Frank. In, 
I, I do think it's been a little bit surprising. The sheer slowness of the regulatory process has been uh, surprising in two areas in particular. One area is the rules, like the Volcker rule, where there were joint rulemaking processes that have just really bogged down in a lot of senses. I mean, Volcker, the report we get back is that the prudential regulators have agreed on a, a, a framework of for the Volcker rule, uh, which is not simple. That's already three regulatory entities, uh, but that you know the SEC has not yet uh, been able to come to the table with them fully or come to agreement, uh, even after uh, several years. And I think also uh, the SEC. I, th I think the. Uh, the SEC was really frozen in place by by Business Roundtable, um, and the the idea that you're going to get uh, some 27 year old law clerk just out of out of law school on the DC Circuit uh, looking at a rule that you, you know you've taken hundreds of comments on and written a very long rule on, and they're just going to sort of say. Uh, well, you know, I like industry studies and not your studies, which is kind of how the business roundtable uh, decision reads. Um, you, you know, is, is something that's going to freeze an agency in place. Now, I, I don't think the business roundtable sh decision should have had that effect on the SEC because uh, the proxy access rule is very different than a lot of other rules because it's a discretionary rule on the part of the agency, for one thing. And I also think that agencies have to be willing to to kind of go ahead with um, with the best they can do on consideration of, of uh, economic impacts of their rules and, and move forward and then defend that rule in court. But we, we really had a long period where the SEC sort of wasn't proposing anything, uh, wasn't finalizing anything, uh, and we're starting to see a little bit of, of motion, but I, I think that was a, a serious... Uh, Roadblock in in Dodd Frank's in in the path of Dodd Frank that hopefully is uh, is starting to change. Well, Paul, I, I swear I did not prompt Marcus to talk about the SEC so much, but you having been inside the SEC and and certainly they're pre Dodd Frank, but certainly there for a number of rulemakings. I think you have that unique perspective of having uh, tried to get a couple rules out. So uh, from the regulatory perspective and also from the outside perspective I mean has this gone to your according to your expectations well I mean first of all yeah I think you have to look at Dodd-Frank uh, you know with a, a very you know direct and uh, you know un um, you know a direct and critical eye it's uh, you know 2319 pages and uh, it's basically a grab bag of all sorts of ideas and a lot of uh, provisions of it uh, were part of a wish list of particular constituencies dating back for um, a number of decades in many cases. And there's no real co coherent theme to the various titles and it. it's about a dozen titles, um, each of which uh, you know deals with something else and hardly uh, really connected. And that's not really surprising because uh, the real problem of Dodd-Frank was the legislative process or lack thereof from the beginning. There were really uh, hardly any substantive hearings about its uh, provisions. And the Volcker Rule, I think, is a great um, case in point where suddenly this idea was uh, sprung upon even Congress, even uh, Chairman Dodd was uh, surprised um, at it at the time. The Treasury uh, wasn't really in favor of it uh, at the beginning. And then political considerations uh, took over. It was very poorly thought out. And so uh, that you have the prudential regulators who, you know, if you go 
way back to how a lot of the things that the Volcker Rule uh, deals with um, should really not really be part of the bank itself anyway. It should be part of the part that Graham Leach Bliley required to be pushed out of the bank as such into a uh, securities subsidiary of the bank. Um, and so these, uh, that's why it's falling on the SEC to try to define some of the particular aspects of Dodd-Frank, so that, uh, of Volcker. So I think that's really an example, um, a good one, of how um, it doesn't really um, uh, fit together. Um, the, um, the problem, I think, ultimately with uh, Dodd-Frank, though, is because there were no real hearings and because the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission really didn't uh, go about its, uh, its remit as it should have, we never really got a good, um, coherent understanding of the financial crisis. Um, and so a lot of Dodd-Frank, I think, is proceeding from a, a false narrative as to the causes of the financial crisis. So what we have in Dodd-Frank is, I would say, a conceit, a regulatory conceit uh, by the federal government that if you get enough information uh, uh, collected by the federal government in their big number crunching machines or wherever, and then you get enough, um, enough smart people in the room that they'll be able to solve um, all the crises. And so, for example, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, a group of uh, 10 uh, heads of the various financial regulatory bodies um, from the Fed all the way down to the National Credit Union Administration, uh, sit around and they look into their crystal ball and try to peer into the future. And so their job is to prick bubbles um, before they happen. We'll see how well that worked because it actually, of course, didn't really work that well um, with the uh, way the government approached uh, the, the looming housing crisis uh, back in the in the 1990s and going into the 2000s. So I think that um, you know, most of all, the um, the you know, it just the the Dodd Frank Act is not a good response to the financial crisis. And one thing that I can't really you know pass up is the. Uh, allusion or the reference here to the business roundtable. I think, you know, the proxy access um, issue is just a great example of something completely unconnected uh, to the financial crisis. And of course, it was on the wish list of unions and other um, state, uh, I'd call them politically motivated um, investors. And so the rule um, was passed. It was the first thing um, out of the box that the SEC did. It was a discretionary rule powered by politics. And um, like Marcus said, there had been lots of study for like since the 40s on this particular rule. And the, the commission went back and forth, never actually really uh, went down the, the road to pull the trigger on a uh, rule. And, um, and so ultimately what they came out with was so incoherent and so impossible to, uh, for a, you know, for a, a unbiased person to see how it would be um, applied, especially with respect to mutual funds. SEC decided to apply it with mutual funds. I won't get into all the details, but that's the one where a unanimous uh, DC circuit basically said to the SEC, what you have sent to us is, quote, unutterably mindless, unquote, because you cannot <laughs> even justify how it would operate in real life and how you got to that position. So I think that's a really very sad uh, tale of uh, regulation um, really run amok, where the SEC uh, just 
completely ignored what it should have been focusing on, and that's related to the financial crisis. So, for example, there still are no rules in place, and this is a mandate coming out of Dodd-Frank, to get rid of references to credit uh, ratings in the various rules. Cindy Glassman, who was another commissioner, and I brought this up way back in 2003 in the wake of uh, Enron and WorldCom and all that. And basically, the staff told us, well, that's impossible. We, you know, it can't be done. That you know, what would happen to money market mutual funds and everything else? So now Congress has told the SEC, and now three years later, it still um, has yet to uh, go about and take um, those uh, references to uh, ratings out of the rules. So anyway. I could go on, but I'll leave it at that. You know, there's a, there's a common theme among some of these examples, and, and it makes me think back to, you know, I really started reading and going through uh, banking regulation statute in the early 2000s, and so after more than a decade of reading banking law, I'm still somewhat sane. But the point that really kind of hits me, and I think that Mark has touched on this, is there are a lot of ways in which Dodd-Frank is very consistent in the extension of, the, you know, the, the existing framework. And one of those elements of the framework is, you know, even pre-Dodd-Frank, there's just tremendous amount of delegation from Congress to the regulators. Marcus touched on the capital standards. Uh, you know, obviously the Basel III or 2.5 or whatever point we were at the process started before Dodd-Frank, yeah. you know, and so, and almost anything in Basel now does not need the authority of Dodd-Frank. It was pre-existing authority. In capital is really an example where there's just tremendous amount of discretion for regulators almost to do anything. Um, the credit rating agencies is another example of, well, you know, do something or not do something. And so to some extent, I, I, I want to go back and ask the question, um, you know, have we gone too far in terms of you know, whatever the merits of a particular, you know, policy uh, have you know what are the pros and cons of essentially leaving so much of the the, the policy making discretion in the hands of regulators rather than in Congress? And maybe I'll start with Marcus on this since we. Well, um, I, I was kind of thinking about that, in, in, uh as as Mr. Atkins was was speaking, because I I do think that. Uh, that Dodd-Frank took this approach, Mr. Atkins described it as, you know, we're gonna have these wise men gather all this data and they're going to foresee systemic risk and uh, and determine when a, when a bubble needs to be pricked. I, I think there's a little more beneficial, there, there's there's some benefits in, in that, uh, that that I could talk about in a minute, but I, I do think that Dodd-Frank took this approach where uh, it, it basically, the decision was, we're gonna leave in place all of the activities that were shown to be problematic uh, during the 2008 crisis. All the activities that created such complexity and made it so difficult for regulators uh, to see the risks as, as they were building. We're gonna leave those all in place, but we're going to um, put in a new layer of risk management on top of them. Uh, you know, credit, credit default swaps, uh, you know, they're, they're different even from other derivatives because of the jump to default problem. It's very difficult. They're, they're not, you know, they, they don't create sort of continuous exposures over time. There, there's that jump to, to default. Uh, it can be very difficult to predict uh, what, what some of their, uh, their outcomes are, but we're not going to require an insurable interest. We're just going to require clearing. Standardized versus uh, over-the-counter derivatives, we're going to leave in place a, a pretty large scope for over-the-counter derivatives. Uh, we're just going to require certain kinds of derivatives to be standardized when they go through this process, complex process, where we determine if they can be. 
uh, credit rating agencies. You, you know, similarly, I think a lot more could have been been done there in terms of some uh, some clear uh, rules. The, the Volcker rule, uh, where we're going to permit continue to permit very extensive involvement of depository banks in uh, securities markets, but now it's just going to be in this role as a market maker that we're going to leave to the the regulators to to fully define that market maker role. And I, I think there there is space and places for regulators to make these uh, these rules work, but I think there are a lot of benefits to coming in there and drawing some sort of sharp, clear lines in in the financial sector. And that was what was done in the the 1930s, and people adapted and were able to compete and actually have pretty strong competition in a lot of areas within those sort of delimited lines and scope of, of financial um, activities. And of course, the other thing that, that we see here is we didn't really replace uh, the regulators or the regulatory staff in a lot of ways. Not, not only is there that continuity in terms of the regulators' responsibilities, there's a lot of continuity in terms of the regulators themselves. So um, there's more to say, but I'll... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to, to Michael and, and, yeah. and maybe ask, so your current congressional staffer, does Congress delegate too yeah. much? Well, sure. I, I mean, definitely. I don't, it, it, you know, when I was thinking about doing this in, in this three, third year anniversary and what we're going to talk about, it, it did dawn on me, or I kind of, I think, came to a conclusion in my head that Dodd-Frank in some ways isn't as bold as it pretends to be, right? I mean, you, you can write a lot of additional rules, um, and that, that's fine. I mean, there probably needs to be additional rules, but the, th the part of it that I do, I think, on, a, on occasion find moderately offensive or at least find that it's not as bold as maybe some would, would think is that these rules have these push-pulls where you say, on the one hand, do this, but figure out how to not do this other thing. So in the Durbin Amendment, I'll, I'll just get back to that one more time, and then I'll let that one go. But uh, it's we want you to have a price cap, but we want the price cap to not impact small financial institutions. So I, I, don't, I don't understand how you're going to create a double-priced market for the same good in an economy, but okay. Uh, the Volcker rule was, was mentioned. We want you to separate um, prop trading because that feels really good to everybody, that prop trading shouldn't be in these institutions, and we do not want you to impact market liquidity. <laughs> okay, I don't, that's interesting. So it's, you have these sort of like, these outs where it's like, are we going to make this bold step and say, look, let's separate investment banking and banking or break up banks or whatever. Um, and we understand we've weighed the consequences and we figured them out and we think it's worth the risk. No, it, it, it doesn't do that. It says, I want you to achieve this political objective, but we also don't want you to do this thing that we think would be the bad consequence of that. And I don't think that in some of these ways that that's really possible. Um, so that that's where I think it it, it doesn't pass maybe as much the bold test as, as we necessarily think. But unfortunately, I mean, this isn't really, this isn't unique. So um, this, I have no intention of this being sort of a Fed bashing session, but in 1978, Congress passed the Humphrey Hawkins Act and said the central bank's going to figure out how to solve unemployment. Now, it's your job. Um, we, and Congress congratulates itself on having solved unemployment by telling the Federal Reserve, you, you fix unemployment. So um, now, can, does monetary policy impact the un uh, unemployment on some level and for some period of time well, well sure but the idea that you're going to delegate to another institution solving this problem is not unique to Dodd-Frank um, it just happens repeated sort of number of times and where it where it kind of to me you read and you think this doesn't make a ton of sense is when you read it and it's we want you to solve this problem but we were told that this is a consequence that will come 
from trying to solve this problem. So we're just going to tell you, don't let that consequence happen. So you mean passing along the responsibility to somebody else doesn't deal with the issue? <laughs> um, before I, you know, I want to throw another question, sort of an issue before I throw it back to Paul a little bit, which is, you know, a lot of what we talked about in discretion really matters in terms of what are the regulators' incentives. And some would say, I mean, capital is a very good example of there's nothing being done in Basel today, under my, in my opinion, that wasn't doable under pre-Dodd-Frank. Uh, and there are often questions of, well, these, you know, to me, part of the narrative of Dodd-Frank is that regulators lacked the tools to either stop the crisis before it happened or deal with the crisis as it was happening. Uh, and of course, as we see in Title II, a lot of questions about, well, you know, we're going to shut these institutions down. And so what I want to get to is the issue of, um, you know, how true is this narrative? I mean, is it less an issue of having the appropriate tools than it is having the appropriate incentives, the appropriate will? Um, you know, if we, we can give regulators tons of tools if they don't use them, you know, then, then, then so what? And I'll also, you know, throw in there, you know, after the savings and loan crisis, you know, it was really thought of we'd create this thing called prompt corrective authority. You know, we would actually draw lines in the sand where, you know, the bank regulators had to do this after this trigger, had to do this after that trigger, uh, and we would never have forbearance again. <laughs> um, so, Paul, I want to I start with this. I mean, I have, in, on a broader sense, if we change the incentives facing the regulators, uh, to lean against the wind, uh, to, to, to be aggressive or to be appropriate when needed. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, a, I agree with you. I think that's a problem with uh, Dodd-Frank that it really basically um, ensconces too big to fail. And I think we're seeing a recognition of that ironically, from both left and right, I think there's a growing consensus uh, on the Hill and elsewhere that uh, Dodd-Frank has not solved the problem, especially, as you mentioned, Title II and the um, Orderly Liquidation Authority. You know, it, it uh, presumes to give, uh, like Mark said, these uh, powers uh, to the FDIC and others to wind up institutions and through living wills and all this other kind of stuff. So banks are spending, uh, you know, millions or billions of dollars of shareholder money to consultants and other people to put these uh, things together. And I guarantee you at the first sign of trouble, that document will be out the window and uh, people will then be left to try to, you know, figure out um, ad hoc uh, what's going on. And so, um, and the FDIC has even come out with its own uh, sort of uh, description of, of how it views this authority. And it's talking about how it would uh, help along different uh, aspects of, you know, whatever the failing institution is and you maybe nurture it along and ultimately sell it off or, or do whatever. So it's not really talking about uh, winding things up and so I think that's um, uh, you know one of the one of the false expectations uh, to put on to government bureaucrats especially non-elected you know unaccountable uh, bureaucrats essentially even though they are in most cases uh, confirmed by the Senate but just like we saw back in uh, the middle part of uh, 2000s where John Snow when he was Treasury Secretary was talking about a housing bubble. This was back in 03 and 04. And so what happened? The Fed came in, their economists with you know stacks of studies and said, oh no, we don't really have a housing bubble. Look at Spain and the United Kingdom and Ireland, you know, some great uh, uh, comparisons there. You know, we, you, we're nothing uh, near that. So, and then of course, uh, um, 
uh, Congress was unwilling really to tackle Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were the real problems and the real causes ultimately um, of the financial crisis. Um, and so, uh, you know, we had election year and second Bush administration then, and it just sort of uh, people were worried about China and other things. And so Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac got a pass. And then ultimately um, the explosion uh, then in uh, inevitable explosion back in the 2007 and 2008. So I think, um, you know, and, and when you look at some of the, as you were mentioning with the Basel um, uh, agreements, uh, one Basel one and Basel two, if you look at how the um, the capital uh, ratios were structured and the buckets um, into which uh, various instruments were put, the banks are encouraged to get the, in each little bucket to look at the riskiest uh, instruments in each one. So there is no question why um, a lot of the European banks are holding so much paper from Portugal and Greece and, and other ones that uh, pay a lot more than uh, Germany and, and others with respect to sovereign debt. So anyway, so that's... I, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm happy to just say more. I mean, that's, that's a, you raise a good point because I think the, the four of us could each write a list of things we thought that contributed to the crisis and have on that list things we thought that were, that the regulators were aware of Mm -hmm. before the crisis. And, you know, certainly as a staff from banking, I sat across the table from FDIC staffs in something like 2004 and said, are you not worried about, you know, the concentration of preferred shares and GSE debt on bank balance sheets? And the response to me was, it's not our problem. So, you know, to, to take this over to Marcus, you mentioned a lot of the same regulators are around. I mean, we got rid of the OTS, but all the staff are still there. We've just moved it under OCC. Uh, we, you know, moved most of the consumer financial people from the other regulators to CFPB. They're essentially the same staff are there. So, you know, given you have the same people, given that we've given the largely the same people more authority, but have we changed the incentive system yeah, to act differently? I feel like I have to step up and defend Dodd-Frank here because I'm, I'm the only person, clearly I'm the only person on the panel who's, who's going to do it. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, that Dodd-Frank, uh, as I said, I, I, I view Dodd-Frank as, as sort of a, a moderate and in, incremental bill in, in many ways. But I, I do think that it made uh, some significant steps because even if, you know, and it's, it's a very complicated question that, you know, you have to go back through the, the code and be a lawyer, which I'm not a lawyer, uh, to, to fully uh, get, but even if you believe that the regulators had the legal authority to do some of these things before the crisis, um, the structure was really set up to create a lot of disincentives for them to to do that, and um, and a lot and some of those structural problems have really been addressed in Dodd Frank. One is the um, the Consumer Financial. Uh, Protection Bureau, you know, you had a, a lot of the things that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is doing, particularly in the areas of, of mortgages, are prefigured in TILA and HOPA, uh, you know, for, for many years. But the Federal Reserve just didn't didn't take the issue seriously and didn't enforce them. Well, what what's the reason for that? Uh, the Federal Reserve is really not a consumer protection regulator. You know, they're, they're a prudential regulator. The incentives on consumer protection and prudential regulation are actually quite different. And having a dedicated, an, an agency uh, that is dedicated to consumer protection, that sees that as its, uh, its mission and at the top leadership level, I think does have a lot of new blood in it, I think has been and will, will continue to be uh, very significant. And also in terms of the Federal Reserve, for, for all its faults, I think there, there was a problem in the uh, prior to the crisis where there was sort of uh, nobody 
at the bridge. There was there was sort of no captain in the ship as far as systemic uh, risk goes. I don't think systemic risk was even fully grasped post Graham Leach Bliley, the, the scope of the of the problem there. And Graham Leach Bliley actually uh, and again, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, so I'm sort of reporting back on what I've read from others, but m made it rather difficult for the Fed to act as a systemic risk regulator because it made it uh, pretty difficult for the Fed to get all the information from the subsidiaries of a large holding company. And of course, the problem post Graham Leach Bliley, the issue isn't in or or even post the changes that occurred in the 80s with with sort of changing Glass-Steagall. The problem isn't really with the bank. The problem is with the the whole holding company. And it was really unclear who was responsible for that whole holding company. And I think uh, in, in Dodd-Frank, it becomes very clear that the, the Fed is kind of the bottom line as far as consolidated capital goes, as far as uh, stress tests go. Uh, the, the Fed knows that if some of these entities blow up, people are going to be coming back to them saying, well, you know, tell us about your stress test you're supposed to be running every year on these things. I mean, the way to make Dodd-Frank look good is to look at the regulators, uh, look at how many things were missed prior to the crisis, which is like unbelievable. I mean, you go down the checklist for the, the sheer number of things that had to go wrong and did go wrong, and it's unbelievable. I mean, over 2007 into 2008, the Fed let uh, the major banks uh, pay out how much in capital? It was like 80 billion or something in uh, in stock buybacks. Where, you know, it's hard to see that happening under under the stress test regime and under the uh, the clarity of the the Fed's responsibility for the the holding company. And I also do really disagree with the. Uh, the the picture of um, Title II resolution as being kind of this uh, this in permanent bailout kind of government guarantee for the entity. I, I think it's uh, it's much more complex than that, and the liquidation uh, requirement under Title II can really have some real teeth. I think the 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 bailout problem is much more that we haven't limited 13.3 enough, and that people aren't looking at that. Uh, so, so you know. Um I think that one of the, I don't know if it's a failing of Dodd-Frank or if it's a failing of our structure, but what we probably should just do a better job of recognizing is what regulators do effectively versus what they don't. And I think that they are pretty effective at micro, like some aspects of microprudential supervision. So taking a look at, you know, here if I'm at the Fed or the OCC or the FDIC and we're responsible for the 12 largest banks and you can say, okay, well, 11 of you are all doing it this way, and one of you has a credit score that is, you know, your average credit score is very different than the other 11, so you, big 12, must be doing something wrong. This is something that I think is part of, like, regulatory culture, and it's something that they just do, sort of, like, breathing on a, on a daily basis. But macroprudential supervision, seeing sort of the forest for the trees, and saying, geez, the entire market is going is going this way, and they have all these reasons for justifying it, but is that is that a bubble or is that a problem? I, I just haven't seen regulatory culture that's capable of dealing with that sort of challenge. And I, I don't know that it ever will be. It's just a distinction of, you know, what, what regulators, I think, prove that they can do versus what we have not been able to see them do. So I guess Dodd-Frank's answer to that is, is FSOC, which, you know, I wasn't in D.C. in the run-up to Dodd-Frank. I was at Wachovia, not, not in uh, D.C. I was in their Charlotte office. And then when I came to DC in 09 and we started talking about the FSOC, my very first thought was, so the regulators don't talk to each other? Like, is this, <laughs> is, we need, we need a title and a new sweeping reform bill to say, you all have different perspectives. So you should sit down and like compare notes every once in a while. I was kind of 
sort of an amazing um, thing to me on that. So um, in any event, maybe, I, I, but I do think the risk to FSOC, so it's one of these like obvious ideas that could potentially fill this thing that regulators don't do good at, which is seeing the forest for the trees. But my concern with FSOC is that it's going to itself turn into a bureaucratic institution where they each bring their pieces of paper that said, this is what's happening. And then we all just get back to checking a series of, of boxes. So it's sort of like the checklist manifesto is what regulators do. Um, and that's what they do well. And have they ever proven capable of doing something well beyond that? Not yet. And so it's just when framing our discussion around what we want them to do, it seems like that is something It's a really good point. I mean, I, I have certainly repeatedly in, in the past used that phrase force for the trees. And certainly one of my reflections, I mentioned earlier in my conversation with the FDIC years ago about Fannie and Freddie, but I think it also, it's the same mentality when you look at credit default swaps. I mean, the sense was if we get the risk out of the institutions we regulate, then it's somebody else's problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think, that, I mean, I'll say something, you know, uh, positive for the moment. I think that's changed a little bit. Mm. Um, but the question is, how durable is that change? And so, you know, one of my questions when I look at the Office of Financial Research and I look at the stress testing, you know, I, I go back and, and sort of think, well, it's kind of nice to know the interconnectedness of the various institutions. But, you know, 2005, all you need to do is watch house prices, really. I mean, you know, the macro data were screaming in my opinion, that we were going to have problem, we were going to have yeah. problems, um, and so let me raise that as is an issue twofold. Um, I guess I should add three elements to this. You know, have we gotten away from this concentration on just simply thinking that if we deal with individual institutions and those individual institutions are safe in a vacuum, then the system is safe? Uh, you know, have we gotten too focused on interconnecting without looking at overall systemic? You know, issues. And then my last element to this is, um, and I would agree, I mean, this is one of the things I think, uh, you've seen a change in attitude from many of the regulators post-crisis. I would argue if you probably went back and looked at the early 90s, you saw a change in regulators post that crisis too. Mm -hmm. um, how much of this is cyclical? You know, when we're in the next, you know, housing bubble and everybody's making money, uh, you know, I'll disagree a little bit from, I think what was early, said in an earlier panel, they were always sort of surprised. Um, I'm actually shocked as a, as a student, as someone who likes to read financial history, property bubbles are happen all the time, you know? So, so you should always be concerned about property bubbles from a financial regulation standpoint. But again, let me, let me throw those questions out in terms of, uh, you know, when it's great times again and we're in the next bubble, are we gonna see a reversion to the old ways? And, and again, have we seen a move away from a focus on individual institutions rather than actually having a macroprudential perspective. And I'll start with Paul. Yeah, well, I think that's inherent in this whole problem where you ascribe, you know, particular powers to government entities to try to to solve it, especially when the power of the bubble is coming from, you know, what the government entity is doing in the first place. And so housing, um, of course, uh, is one example. And so, uh, you know, to now uh, think that the, this Financial Stability Oversight Council will be able to, you know, prick a bubble. And the trouble with a bubble is, of course, when you prick it, um, it's one person's livelihood uh, is another person's bubble. And so that was what happened with the housing crisis. Of course, you know, you have all the uh, community bankers and the real estate agents and the construction folks scattered around in every congressional district and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with their huge lobbying machines. So they started 
started to um, really go into high gear, and they're still doing it now, right? When, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, just the prospect of real GSE reform, and, uh, you know, it's going to, we'll see what happens over the next few years. So I think to, to um, you know, ask uh, government bureaucrats to uh, take these extraordinary steps, uh, even now, so for example, this uh, FSOC um, is pressuring the SEC to uh, take steps with respect to money market mutual funds. They've come up with, I think, really cockamamie ideas. They were, uh, the Fed was uh, uh, apparently pushing uh, the idea of putting, uh, requiring capital to be um, held back uh, with respect to these uh, various funds, meaning that uh, shareholders who are in these money market mutual funds for a 100% equity product uh, would be required to put up capital to stop to stop supposed runs in the future, even though there's nothing to really point to from even the financial crisis uh, to ascribe uh, any you know cause and effect uh, with a financial crisis from uh, what happened with money market mutual funds. So people can disagree about those things, but uh, to uh, to to try to you know explain this out is what I think is um, you know really necessary. And when you look at um, now the SEC's uh, proposal, they've ditched uh, that uh, particular idea of the Fed, and they're going off in a different direction. We'll see whether or not uh, you know what happens out of that. But I think it I think we're giving probably too much authority and too much uh, power to the Fed and to other aspects of that you know, um, FSOC. I was going to say, it's, it is worth remembering. I don't think you could un underestimate the extent to which sort of the institutional memory at the Fed is that having raised rates during the late 20s and 29 really is the perspective of having popped the bubble and felt like that that ended badly. Um, and so, you know, it's certainly there's been decades-long institutional thinking at the Fed that you know, the best way to deal with the bubble is just clean up the mess afterwards. And, and, and so let me turn over to Marcus again with the, the pro-cyclicality of all this and the, and the force for the trees. Well, I think I, I want to talk, say something about the micro versus macro prudential uh, aspect. Um, and I, I don't know if this is going to work in, but I, I strongly disagree with this perspective that the, the GSEs caused the crisis. I think the private securitization market was was in the lead. And at the very end, the GSEs went off the cliff. But GSEs were doing securitization for many decades before. Uh, I mean, what's really extraordinary about the five to eight years prior to the crisis is the explosion in the private securitization market. Um, but on, on this micro versus macro issue, I, I don't think you can separate the issues in Dodd-Frank from what we permitted to happen to our our financial system, uh, which is is basically that we have a we 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 shifted uh, from institutionally mediated credit to market mediated credit, basically, uh, so that institutions might be originating loans, uh, but those loans were immediately sort of sliced and diced on an assembly line and farmed out all over the world for anyone to invest in whatever little tidbit of that loan risk they wanted to, to invest in. And then furthermore, that, that those little tidbits were used as collateral for the institutional liquidity to keep the, the machine going. And as long as you have permitted that to happen in your, your financial system, uh, you are stuck with thinking macroprudentially. You, you don't really have a choice anymore because the just looking at the institution is not going to give you uh, the information that you need. And you could really see this, and the Fed has admitted this many times, that the the, the problem they had is they just added up the loan loss on, um, 
on what they thought was the subprime exposures out there, like how many houses have a subprime mortgage and how much will they drop and will those drop in value and what's total impact and okay, our financial system, which we think has all these multi-trillion in assets can take that loss. Well, guess what? Those, that multi-trillion in assets was sort of a leaning tower of stuff that was all built on top of those very same houses, which had been sort of re-collateralized three, four, five times uh, through different markets. Um, so you have to look at the markets. You, well, you have two choices. You can take the approach that the Warren McCain bill does. Uh, that, that they've introduced, which is a really bold, strong bill that doesn't rely on regulatory discretion, that says let's restore some of these divisions between institutions that make institutional loans versus involvement in the securitization markets, or you need a much more sophisticated macroprudential take on the part of the regulators. I, I don't see any um, uh, option there. And the the regulators are trying to go down that macro uh, prudential road, uh, and they want to do it on their own. They deliberately left the repo markets out of Dodd-Frank. I think there was pressure behind the scenes that we're not going to touch repo. But it's, it's, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be challenging, and they're going to have to move to do this. Tarullo has signaled that he wants to do new rules on this, and uh, you know they're going to have to. And in terms of the future um, on this, uh, yeah, these these things are are cyclical, and it's it's a big problem because when when you have these very complex forms of market mediation, it might not even be showing up in the 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 line between the overvaluation of one consumer asset and the overvaluation of some security that banks are holding or maybe borrowing on is going to be potentially uh, very indirect. Uh, so you but there there is. Last, sorry, I'm going on a bit too long, but the, the BIS has done some interesting recent work on predictors on this, of, of sort of macro predictors of over-exuberance. And one basic thing you can say is, you know, if your credit supply is growing a lot faster than your real economy, which is supposed to be the basic asset that is underpinning all that credit, then maybe you have a problem, you know? So that's sort of a place to, to start from. And, and I would agree there. There certainly aren't a very large literature of macro predictors that are out there that seem to have largely been ignored before the crisis. Uh, you not necessarily getting into uh, McCain-Warren, but maybe getting into the, the, the broader issue of, you know, the House has passed a number of things. Um, Michael, why aren't you guys doing anything? Mm -hmm. no, let me just ask you, uh, you know, what is the Senate outlook for any change uh, to Dodd-Frank? Um, well, so, you know, the one that had the best shot was the was a fix to the Durban Amendment, which I, I, I think that was 2011 right. where we made a go at that and came a few votes short. And it is, really was unfortunate um, because it was the, the sort of the feel of the momentum and the discussion at the time was this could be the model for a way you fix this bill. Because, as I said, you know, one of the problems I think after the bill passed and people started looking at it was that people realized there was this push-pull in the, in, the, in the statute, do this, but even though we know it's going to cause this outcome, figure out how to make it not cause this bad outcome, and we promise that it will ultimately get to this spot. And this spot is not logical or in any way realistically possible, and doing this without impacting this negatively can't happen. So um, you, know, you, can't, you can't pass price fix and have there be multiple prices for the same product in the economy. It doesn't work. Um, and so we realized it wasn't going to happen. So let's, let's make a, a change that has the law fit, fit with what we promised it would do. That was sort of going to be the model, and it felt like if we could have passed uh, uh, our fix to the Durban Amendment, we could have used that as sort of a, a blaze trail to 
the, there are a number of statutes here that promise one thing, but clearly there's a lot of tension there. So let's try and address the tension by tweaking it to, to focusing in on what we promised it would do. And, and I just think that it, the momentum died. It died pretty spectacularly, actually, after our bill. And the Treasury Department has made clear that they don't really see a lot of other aspects to Dodd-Frank that they think need um, a statutory fix. So, uh, <coughs> And you would say that momentum is the same for... And things beyond Dodd Frank, like Brown Vitter or McCain Moore, and these things don't have momentum either. Um, so that's that's, I guess that's a totally different conversation. So I, I don't see momentum for those things in the House. Okay, I, I, I haven't. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the House, but I, I don't know that there are um, uh, companion pieces of legislation that are really gaining momentum over there. So you know, I guess we criticized Dodd Frank for not being, not really being as bold as it promised. I wouldn't take from that that I think just because something is bold means it's good policy. So these are certainly there are certainly other ideas that are that are quite bold. Um, I do think that it makes it's important for us to separate what feels good from what actually is um, <coughs> is is sound policy. Um, my you know this is a whole different rabbit trail. Should we should we take a sledgehammer to the entire financial services banking model? You know, our inclination would be no in a lot, a lot, a lot of these ways we're solving problems that maybe aren't the right problems to solve. I do think, though, in terms of um, congressional momentum, there is momentum for GSE reform. I mean, it, it's happening. I, I, I think that I, I'm going to predict now that I do think we're going to pass housing finance reform in this Congress. It, 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 the molecules are moving. The you know the House is clearly moving on stuff. We have real momentum in the Senate. We're gonna have, to we're gonna have a point where you could, if Crapo and Johnson would vote for a Corker Warner bill, you could get it off committee just with the co-sponsors. Oh. Um, I, I think that um, I, I hear you on the Fannie Freddie weren't the cause. I think that everybody has the, has a cause or their cause of the crisis, and I think we it's a dangerous. Um, path to go down to attribute the financial crisis to one thing or one number of things. But I do think that there is now a, a emerging political consensus across the spectrum that it is a flawed and terrible policy idea to have entities that are blessed and mandated to have a social mission, but have CEOs who are responsible to shareholders and have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders, which presumably means a fiduciary duty to leverage whatever funding advantages they maybe have because they're blessed with this sort of congressionally chartered mission. So to have entities with private shareholders that are traded on in a stock exchange that um, are duopolies that dominate the market, who are also seen by Congress as their constituency to implement the policies and social goals that they want. Like this is this is a failed model. I mean, this is absolutely a failed model. Now, whether or not we're going to go down the but their loss severity was less than the private sector's loss severity. So does that mean they were quote unquote the cause? It's an interesting conversation. But um, the point is, I do think there's real momentum to say, um, really, to entities that we are we are explicitly telling them they are too important to fail, but they're also going to trade as private entities with private shareholders who will sweep all of the gains and when things are good, stick us with the bill when things are bad, and then as soon as the sun comes out again, start knocking on the door saying we don't really like the terms of our bailout, which is what's happening. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's happening. I mean, it's, it's happening. I mean, this is like, we're moving beyond this. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, say that, you know, we were going to have a bipartisan movement. It will be the only, it'll be the first post-crisis bipartisan, truly bipartisan um, uh, um, vehicle to address one of the contributing factors to the crisis, which is that we had this flawed model. So I think that that's the thing that's got legs as Congress. I, I think we probably all agree that uh, privatized gains and socialized losses is a bad thing. Um, you'd let me open it up to the 
audience to see if there's some uh, additional questions out there, some commentary uh, over here. And uh, please identify yourself and please, uh, you know, phrase your question in the form of a question. And we keep speeches for the uh, fourth and fifth panels that don't quite exist yet. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kat Contagoglia with the FFIEC. And uh, I just had a question about, in the past before the crisis, I think a lot of the issues with the Fed and what regulators were up to were fairly out of the public eye. People didn't pay that much attention to it. Following the crisis, rightly so, understandably so, there's definitely a lot more public scrutiny and um, regarding these regulatory policies and, and what's going to happen. And, you know, it makes sense because, you know, you had the bailouts, which was dealing with taxpayer money. And then, like you were saying, if we're going to talk about dealing with asset prices, that could very well be somebody's livelihood. But I was curious. Um, I could see how this could be a positive thing. I think everyone agrees more transparency is a good thing. But I could also see how when you're trying to make these policies, a lot of these ha were insulated in the past and sometimes for good reason because not they don't always lead, for example, to higher GDP growth. You might have to do things that aren't that painful. I mean, that are painful. And so as far as like pressure from elected officials trying to do what is in the best interest of their voters and kind of, you know, coming out and talking about these policies and publicizing them, has this, how, how has that affected policymaking environment right now in a positive or a negative way? And how do you think it should be affecting it? Um, how do we deal with greater transparency, but at the same time allow uh, policies coming from the Fed that actually make sense and aren't driven by political pressures. Let's, and so let's, let me preface with when, the, you know, to, to ask any questions, if you would like it for the entire panel to say for the entire panel, if you want to direct it at a particular person, and I'll let Marcus start. Well, first of all, these policies have always, before the financial crisis for many decades, these policies have always been transparent to the institutions with a lot of money at stake. They, they were always, I mean, <laughs> that's the Washington economy. They, they were always transparent to the, to the the institutions that stood to benefit from them, and there has always been uh, lobbying on on this stuff. There there has been some insulation on some aspects of bank supervision, but you know I I really think that the the new transparency that's come in here is the public understanding that they really have a, a lot at stake in financial stability and financial. Uh, you, you know, and on what what Wall Street does behind the scenes, and I think that's all to the good. We just completed a a, a recent public survey and found we've actually done this survey several times, repeated over the past couple of years, and found that 83 percent of the public favor tougher rules and enforcement on Wall Street, and that's up 10 percent uh, from last year, and only nine percent feel that we've gone far enough under the the Dodd Frank process. So there there is this. Uh, this public pressure out there, I think it's a good thing. And I think just to pick up one thing on your, your question about whether Congress has acted, I, I think that public uh, awareness has helped us protect what we do have in Dodd-Frank because uh, there have been a couple of bills, and Michael correctly said, I think that's a somewhat separate conversation on Warren McCain or Brown Vitter about going beyond uh, Dodd-Frank, but there have been quite a number of bills, especially in the House, that would significantly water down sort of back elements, sort of sort of technical elements of Dodd-Frank, things like the derivatives rules and things like this. And we have managed to uh, to stop those bills, whereas I think in previous years, uh, we might not have, have had success. And, and one reason is that when you, you bring it to the public, they, they get it now. And I, I think that's a positive thing. 
Well, one, I just uh, on that point, I'd love to see what the actual question was that was posed to, to the uh, to the people participating in the poll. Because once people then understand that you know a lot of these rules have a real immediate effect on their on the credit they're available to get at what price and and this sort of thing, the the types of financial products they have, then I think their their chain their um, responsibility we changed. We did test negative messages on negative messages on Dodd Frank and. I think the, the support stayed at, at 60, 60 plus percent, 64 percent for. Well, again, I'd, I'd like to see whatever yeah. the, the specifics were, but else, right. So, but but I think that what what people have to understand is that there all there is a cause and effect, and that if you you know if you discourage uh, the particular offering of, of particular products, or you make it more um, difficult uh, for people for banks and other institutions to do it, that means you'll get less of it, or it will cost more, or there will be some kind of a cause and effect there. But with respect to transparency, I think, um, you know, which uh, you were talking about, I think is is extremely important. And I think that is one of the, I mean, we not want to ascribe any particular aspect, uh, cause to the financial crisis, but I do think that the lack of transparency with financial statements of uh, financial institutions um, to shareholders and other parts of the market is a real problem. And so, for example, Bank examiners can come in and they might have a very negative view of a particular institution. And at the same time, the underwriter who is flogging uh, equity securities of that same financial institution has no clue what the bank examiners really think about it because the part of the due diligence of the underwriter He's not allowed to to look at um, those examination records uh, from the bank examiner. So there you have a real discrepancy between um, uh, you know what what the government is looking at and then what the uh, what the private sector uh, can look at. And then uh, with respect to you know the inscrutable um, aspect of uh, financial statements of financial institutions because of complex accounting rules and things like that. That's uh, another real. Um, problem that is not addressed um, at all by Dodd-Frank or by anything else that I can see. Uh, I, just, I mean, I would agree. I, I do think that <clears throat> it, there is still very much widespread, broad-based distrust of our financial system and our financial institutions in particular. Um, there's, there's, I, there's no, you almost can't even argue that. I mean, the, the these institutions have a long route road to go to getting sort of reputation back as being um, true true players in the true economic players that have to deal with um, the same rules as everybody else. Now, um, that's both powerful in your I guess maybe your argument in a positive way. So, for example, that means that you know if we say that derivatives should clear on a clearing exchange, and there's a movement to say certain derivatives shouldn't clear on an exchange and that's probably not necessarily good for the system to exempt a certain thing just because we want to exempt this certain thing then that's positive that there's this inability to do something as a giveaway to a donor or you know financial institution it's also frightening um because populism isn't really a sound way for making policy so it does it does scare me quite a bit too um so i i, I hope that 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 we're emerging into a dialogue where we can be honest about what financial institutions, um, where they take advantage of the rules versus what they where they do things that attribute greatly to the economic well-being. So, I mean, in in mortgages, we have you can get a mortgage for a low rate and you can prepay it anytime you want. Um, 
and you're not going to prepay it when rates are going up and you're going to prepay it when rates are going down. And I don't think that people realize how hard it is to price and manage that. Um, and that happens because of some of these wizards who we love, these financial wizards who we love to hate, but they've, that this is now a product that we almost take for granted. So, um, it's a push pull. Uh, I, I don't think that, I think that der moving derivatives to an exchange is a good thing for the system. And it's good that we're not going to water that down from in the most part, in my opinion, but, um, not if it's based off of popul leveraging populism. Until we have to bail out an exchange. Or well, but, sure, but there's yes. always, <laughs> no, uh, generally when the public, when the public wants something, <laughs> often Congress gives them something, whether it's something good right, or yeah, bad is a, right. is a different question altogether. And uh, let's take the question over here in the back. And please wait for the microphone. Thank you. Hi, Alicia Saratani with LPI. Um, I just want to raise the this glaring irony that always comes up with Dodd-Frank in the last five years of, of bailouts is that the banks came to the Congress and said, we're so important, we're so systemically important that you have to rescue us. And I would assert that the, the rise of the financial services industry and the bailout has been at the expense of lives of American people, lives of people around the world. And if you look at some of the, I mean, the labor stats today, the youth unemployment in Europe and the United States in the last five years are I mean, it's a real death sentence. There's the, the life expectancy is, is crashing in counties, you know, in our own country. Um, I know that, and in and, and saying that, I just, I find it remarkable that in this city, people can speak so, still so respectively about some of these financial giants. And I don't mean that in a populist way. I mean, LIBOR hasn't been reconciled. It, it killed people. We cut vital services for people. Um, that being said, I, I would like to get each of the panelists um, on record on a full separation of commercial and, and investment banking. This is, this is Glass-Steagall, the, the real thing. This is what the, uh, Mr. Stanley there uh, earlier mentioned. Um, there's a bill in the House. There's now two bills in the Senate. Um, but I'd like each of you on record saying whether you think uh, this is a good idea, because we are headed for another crash. Um, and many people, including Thomas Honig, uh, the father of the House of Commons in Britain have said, if we don't have that separation, you're not going to be able to recognize the financial sector. I, I want to add, before I turn this question over, add, add a subpart to the question. I mean, so let's simplify the question and make it very simple without any speeches. Do you think a new Glass-Steagall is good, yes or no? And then the question I'm going to add to that is, do you think utility-style, plain commercial banking is relatively risk-free? I'll start that with my Marcus. Well, I, I don't need to. I, I'm happy to uh, to answer the question, but we are already on record at, at Americans for Financial Reform is endorsing the the Warren McCain uh, Glass Steagall restoration bill. So we do believe that that uh, separation is is important, basically for the reasons that I I said before. That if you allow sort of unlimited market mediation of credit, you end up in this world where the regulators are having to stay ahead of. Uh, the Wall Street wizards on all the different ways that they hide the risk, and I just I just don't think that at the end of the day that's uh, that's going to be fully possible. Um, I think that uh, that Warren McCain is is a, it's new. It's not just the original Glass Steagall uh, language. It recognizes I think that we have this market mediated credit. I think that we we do need to understand that there's going to be some credit mediation outside the commercial banks through uh, derivatives, through securitization, uh, and that we have to address that as well. And so, for example, the Warren McCain bill gets rid of the 
the bankruptcy exemption for certain kinds of, of repos for for you, you know do a repos on mortgage-backed securities. It's a very important element of it that hasn't gotten uh, a lot of attention. So we we do support that now on. On commercial banking risks, of course, commercial uh, banking has has risks, and you know some people have forwarded uh, another kind of a functional division, which is that you really just separate off the payment system entirely, and you make all uh, financial activities that involve risk, including lending, be equity financed. Uh, Art Wilmarth has put forward something like that. That's not going to happen. Uh, it's it's another form of of delimitation that's that's interesting. But I think that the the, the key thing is that risks differ in their nature. Risks, some kinds of risks are easier for a, uh, a bank examiner with maybe an MBA to, uh, to deal with and to inspect and examine. Uh, that, that person is not going to be able to model a derivative, but he very well might be able to look at the underwriting on a loan and come up with a, a good judgment on it. I think that when you restrict activities, and, and there could be enormous risks in, in lending, but if, if you uh, that those risks are easier to police and supervise in a lot of ways, and also that the underwriting relationship, the relationship of underwriting alone is actually very different than the kind of relationship that occurs when you trade on a financial market. Uh, financial market trading is very short term. You're sort of looking for a greater fool. You're you're the interests of your counterparty are completely opposed to your interests, whereas in underwriting, uh, you share an interest with the person that you made the loan to. It's a long-term relationship. Uh, it's a different kind of, uh, of, of interaction. So you, you have to look not just at whether risk exists, but how easy that risk is to police and what the nature of the risk is. Paul? Yeah, well, I think it's a bad idea. Um, having uh, lived through, um, uh, you know, as a lawyer and doing uh, securities transactions and others uh, with respect to, um, you know, banks and securities firms and whatnot, you know, I saw the gamesmanship and the balkanization in the financial industry that was a result of uh, Glass-Steagall and what it developed into uh, since it was adopted back in the 30s. So, um, you know, I just, I don't understand that um, whole, uh, you know, I think it's really a populist uh, kind of drive. It has no real connection to the 2008 crisis, which, you know, I think, uh, as we were talking about before, there are lots of, uh, of causes to it, um, uh, and you can pick it, but I, I would hang my hat basically on the lack of transparency and the um, ascribing too much uh, import to the uh, credit ratings. Um, and then, of course, uh, the uh, GSEs, I think, ultimately, and the housing policy of the government. Um, but basically, you know, if we would let institutions fail and not uh, bail them out, and Bear Stearns, I think, was the original sin back there in 08, of course, then followed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then the other decisions that were made. I think that's the real thing to focus on and not a populist thing that uh, like, uh, you know, reviving Glass-Steagall. You know, it's a, it, 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 I like to remind people that you go back and look at the hearing record for Glass-Steagall in, in the 30s, and it's actually fairly clear that uh, Chase National Bank wrote most of the sections that separated investment commercial banking. So, uh, you know, the sort of populist love of it, despite it was a bank-structured bill anyhow, you know, raises the issue of you have a lot of this populist anger outside, and then once you get in the committee rooms of Dirksen uh, and Russell, you know, God knows what actually happens uh, in the back room. Uh, and on that note, maybe I'll turn it over to someone who inhabits those rooms. I'm unclear what we're solving in going back to Glass-Steagall. Um, 
I, Bear Stearns, I think, was mentioned, Lehman Brothers, Countrywide, First American, Fannie Freddie, all, these institutions who are sort of the ones that you would poster put as poster children for all a lot of the bad behavior, if not all the bad behavior, all exist. Uh, and I think a post Reed Glass Steagall framework. Um, so I, I guess I guess I'm I'm unclear what what we're solving. I, I'm willing to look at any proposal or, or ideas. Um, we always do, and we look at everything in our office um, with fresh eyes and we'll, an objective perspective. But I I, I guess I, I am a little unclear, um, kind of what we're solving. I, I guess one of the arguments that is that I hear that rings potentially the most uh, palatable to me when I hear these arguments is that you have these massive cultural differences that exist in a supermarket financial institution. Um, and that's true in the extreme. So uh, a prop trader sitting over here by himself trading crude oil and like I think on uh, during the Enron, didn't they have some people on, on tape that were like cheering for the oil fields burning because they were long crude, right? Okay, so something, some insane sociopathic behavior on the one hand versus a, um, uh, you know, some guy who's in in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who knows his customers and is helping them get an auto loan. Like, like these are extreme cultures, right? And this is exceptionally bad. We can all agree, and, and should not exist anywhere in the world, particularly in a financial institution that has a safety net. And this is something that this is behavior that that we want. But that that's extreme. I mean, ninety percent of financial services is, I think, sort of a blend that's that's in the middle. Is is I guess the way that I would look at it. And while I we agree that the sociopathic behavior is bad. The fact that these are different cultures, I mean, BMW as an institution has pointy-headed engineers who design engines, and then they have sales folks who are out selling cars, and these are incredibly different cultures. So I, I, you can, I think, manage an institution that has different cultures within it. Um, I want to get rid of this terrible behavior that I talked about over here, but I, I'm unclear, I guess, what problem we're solving by reinstating you know, that. Say one, uh, sure. one additional. I, I, I want to first say, actually say good word for populism since nobody else uh, seems to be willing to. I mean, you can hardly look at, at it, it would be hard to do worse than the experts have done over the past couple decades. And I think that point that was just made, you know, the, the financial sector has failed the real economy even before the crisis. We were looking at the slowest growth in uh, since uh, over the, the decade previous to the financial crisis since the Great Depression. And we, we sort of moved from financial bubble to financial bubble, attempting to reinflate the, with the experts attempting to reinflate those bubbles. And that was, you know, there was massive misdirection of, of investment. So I think the experts should, should step back and realize some validity in, in some of the, uh, the populist uh, pressures here. And just the second thing, this is much too big a, a debate to fully engage in here, but the, the problem with the crisis what caused the crisis isn't that Bear Stearns and Lehman failed. It's that Bear Stearns and Lehman were going to bring down Citibank and Bank of America. And you have to ask, and, and that's really the Glass-Steagall issue, you have to ask about those interconnections. Uh, and I think that, that a restoration of something like Glass-Steagall can, can get you toward that. But I don't think it makes a difference if every institution is making the same mistakes. I mean, if, if, if every institution is about to go down because they all made the same mistake... I, I don't know that I, I mean. Because they all respond to the same risk weighting. And they're kind of sure, right? I mean, well, I, I, I guess. One thing I would just want to throw in, Bear Stearns wasn't going to bring out Citibank. Citibank was already probably insolvent by the time Bear Stearns happened. They just had access to the window. Bear Stearns didn't. And so that was the thing that, that created that crisis there in March of 08. So I think you have to look farther back at how these various financial institutions were governed by the regulators, the, um, the incentives that were, um, you know, 
basically um, allowed them to uh, to go into the various well, things. Well, if Chase wrote to. Glass-Steagall, Citibank wrote Gramm-Leach-Bliley. So, uh, you know, if they were behind the crisis, then. Well, you know, I, I don't actually think there is a debate among us over, you know, I certainly have the opinion that we over-subsidize finance, housing, and, and many other sectors of the economy that makes us all considerably poorer than we'd be otherwise. So let me ask, the, ask a question this way, and then I'll open up to one other question is, you know, the framework of Glass-Steagall and so many of these other conversations is let's limit access to the safety net, yet there's never a conversation about why aren't we limiting the safety net. So maybe what I should do is the first of us who actually has $250,000 in bank deposits can answer first. <laughs> oh, so that's none of us? Does anybody in the room have $250,000 in, in, in insured deposits? It used to be limitless, but we ended tag. Yes. So okay. it's dropping. So my, my point being is... Um, you know, why aren't we and should we be having the conversation about not only limiting access to the safety net, but actually pulling back the safety net? Marcus? Well, well uh, I mean, I think that we, we have many members in Americans for Financial Reform who support um, public a, a public role in, in supporting housing affordability. Uh, and I think that it, it's perfectly possible to separate the debate about what should government support. You know, should government uh, take steps to make sure that the 30-year mortgage is uh, affordable and available to people? Should uh, government take steps to make sure uh, that the payment system and sort of liquidity for retail depositors is there and reliable? Uh, and s separate that uh, from the question of of the way the safety net has expanded to lots and lots of activities uh, that are benefiting extraordinarily wealthy people. It's unclear how they're benefiting other people in the economy. Have all kinds of pernicious effects. Uh, and if we can, if we can say that okay, in the areas where governments provide support, that support is going to be transparent and clear, and people are going to understand what the rules are. And people are going to understand who the beneficiaries are. And I think what Michael said about, you know, some of the incentives created by the public-private mix of, of the GSEs is, is relevant to that. Uh, because you have some of these, these things being leveraged for, for the stockholders and, and not always for the, uh, the, the, the people who are supposed to be benefiting from the mortgages. So, uh, Well, um, let me turn it over to question. Newt. Yeah, my name is Knut Rostad with the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard. I think Michael brought up the issue of investor distrust. I would suggest it might be investor disgust, but two very quick questions for all the panelists. On a scale of one to 10, how important for the, for the financial services industry and for perhaps our economy is the state of investor distrust on a scale of one to 10? And then secondly, if you were a benevolent dictator for a day, just for one day, what one thing would you do to address that? Oh, geez. Uh, so 11, maybe on a scale of 1 to 10? I, I, um, you know, we, we got this when we were working on our, our GSE bill. It rests the, the fundamental, one of the fundamental premises of Corker Warner, not just that we're not going to have shareholders invest in um, these institutions that now have this, schizophrenic charter and mission, um, but we're going to capitalize the system. We're going to capitalize, we're going to get more capital and it's going to be stronger capital and it's going to be explicit capital. It's going to take on credit risk. And um, that has been the single largest pushback we've gotten on our bill. And the, the basically it has gone from the, the, 
the conversation I have with folks who I need in order to, to capitalize this new system is, why would I allocate capital to your system I do not trust? I don't out trust anything. I, you know, I don't trust Washington to not change the rules. Washington changes the refinance rules all the time. They change eligibility for these programs. They step in on loan modifications. They change these rules. Um, so I, no, I'm not like you need to prove to me that you can that you're worthy of my money for credit risk. And so I think that um, that you know, just in the in the housing finance realm, it's it's a massive problem. So um, you know, we we are not benevolent dictators, but we want to give. Uh, ultimate investors a little bit of immunity from if they didn't make the underwriting decisions or we didn't they didn't they weren't the ones reviewing the loan files and should they be the ones who you're going to sue if something goes bad so that that's something that we're looking at in the context of housing finance I, I don't think that's necessarily the, exactly what you're focused on I'll let these guys take that but that's just something that's been on our mind and so there is uh, there is a world of investors out there who um, don't trust anything and and this is why. 95% of mortgages made in this country today come with a government wrap because um, no one trusts that the rules aren't going to change. No, no one trusts the models. No one trusts that we have empirical data that we can use to actually, actually assess and price this risk. So yeah, we've got a, that is a huge hangover from the crisis that I think still lingers. Paul, did you want to? Yeah, no, I think uh, investor uh, trust or distrust, whichever way you want to look at it, is extremely important in that you know, that's where we get capital to uh, run our economy. So it's extremely important. And if you look at the PE ratios of financial institutions, that's why they tend to be low, because uh, people don't necessarily trust um, uh, what they're hearing from either the government or from uh, the, you know, audited financials of themselves. And the Europeans are finding this out uh, now in spades uh, with respect to their own financial crisis because, uh, you know, their banks are hurting partly because of, uh, you know, the whole uh, distrust that investors have. So I think it's very important. So it's, I agree, it's probably off your scale as far as uh, what uh, we should be focused on. And so we're not going to get there by making it harder for investors uh, to put money in or to make it uh, more balkanized, like with respect to some revived uh, Glass-Steagall uh, type of uh, system, um, or with the system that Dodd-Frank has created with you know all of these new rules where um, people are very uncertain about the future. Um, so uh, anyway, if I were a dictator for the day, I'd probably blow up Dodd-Frank and start again with a true, you know, uh, a, a true um, legislative uh, in, the, in the proper sense of, of hearings and going about and trying to figure out, you know, from the ground up what the, what the answer should be rather than the higgledy-piggledy thing that we have now. Marcus, would you like to have the last word on this? Sure. Uh, and on the, uh, I, I think people would have been glad to have hearings on uh, on Dodd Frank, but as I, as I recall, the the minority party uh, was was not amenable to that in the in the bank committee. But uh, and and uh, Dodd Frank. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm, not, I'm still going to I'll give you the last word. I'll give you the last word. But the minority party does not set the hearing schedule. I'll get, I'll do your work for you. <laughs> Go ahead. But let, let let me let me move away from this contested terrain of democracy and be a dictator for a moment. It's it is a lot more fun. Uh, but. Uh, I think two, two, we really need to do two things. One is, um, and I know you're a big believer in this, Knut, uh, really reintroduce uh, a fiduciary standard in, into our financial system, a, a standard that says that if I'm uh, advising somebody in a complex transaction, if I'm structuring a complex 
a transaction or security for someone, that I owe them a fiduciary duty to do it in their their best interest. That if I'm just doing a sale on something that's that's you know relatively clear, sure, I'm a counterparty and and we're trading there. If I'm just providing you with information, then sure, I'm providing you with information. But if I'm in there giving you advice and uh, and helping you structure uh, a, a solution to your financial problem, uh, then I should be a fiduciary. And there are actually a lot of elements in Dodd-Frank that try to do this for municipal, for public entities and municipalities. Uh, it creates for advice, uh, for financial advisors to municipalities, a fiduciary duty. Uh, for retail investors, there's there's some motion toward this at the SEC, and there's been a lot of resistance and pushback to this. The second thing I think we need to do, though, is that if we're going to have securitization markets, we need a simplified, standardized uh, securities in their securitization structures and, and in their simplified, standardized, and transparent in their securitization structures. Uh, and in their their underwriting to the degree possible, and in the the loan level data, the availability and accessibility of loan level data uh, to investors, uh, and and that is something that we absolutely did not have uh, in the past. But with with computer technology, you know, it's very possible for investors to do a, a lot of diligence on this stuff. And I do think we need standardization of the structures themselves, because if you've ever looked at these these waterfalls and these the, the ways that things are sliced up in, in these, these securitizations, it's just really crazy. Um, and people are going to say, oh, I could get a little extra bit of efficiency there if I can just customize the structure perfectly. But I, I don't think that that trade-off is, is worth it uh, for the, the, the trade-off in liquidity and trust that you get. And this might be an area where there can be some bipartisan agreement, I think, around uh, GSE reform. Maybe my dictator for a day would have an uh, enforceable fiduciary standard on Congress and the president, but that would be uh, <laughs> for the taxpayer. But that's what I, I want to thank our panelists, and I want to thank our audience. Uh, I also want to welcome you upstairs to the second floor for lunch, where we were here, Congressman Garrett, give us uh, his take on Dodd-Frank.